0: I know we're talking about the life of Moses, and we're going to talk about some events from Moses' life. We're going to review some things from the past week this morning. Uh, But when it all comes back down to it, um, the story of the Lamb that we're going to be talking about today takes us to a cross, and the overarching message um, throughout the entire Bible is that truly the cross was enough. And uh, that's really where we're focusing today and where we're headed, um, even as we start back in Exodus and the life of Moses. So, we've been talking about Moses, a man who lived about 3,500 years ago, a man that God used to deliver a nation from slavery, and uh, as we've been talking about his life, we kind of keep coming back to some common themes and some common um, pieces of information about his life. Uh, one of those things that we've been talking about kind of week after week is that Moses' life um, divides neatly into thirds. There's the 40 40, 40, 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. Um, Moses spending the first 40 years of his life um, in Egypt as a prince, as royalty. Life was good. Um, The way that kind of segment of his life ends is that he decides to kind of take matters into his own hands, um, decides he's going to maybe try and uh, deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, and so he kills an Egyptian. And uh, instead of things going the way he thought that they would, and him being the hero, um, he's basically chased out of town, and he flees Egypt um, at the age of 40. And that next 40-year section of his life, um, he's uh, he gets married, he has a son, he gets a job, he's a shepherd, he works for his father-in-law, and for 40 years, he's out shepherding sheep. And that segment of his life ends um, with the burning bush experience, which we talked about uh, two weeks ago, which... Incidentally enough, two weeks ago, um, after I preached about the burning bush, I was walking into Home Depot and uh, outside there was a pallet um, and in front of the pallet was a sign that said burning bush. And I thought, wow, how how amazing is that? You You can buy a burning bush. 1998, such a bargain. And they were sold out, of course. (laughs) You know, Moses had 40 years in the desert and God appears to him in a burning bush, changes his life. I thought I could buy one for 1998 and they were sold out. So, um, haven't gone back to see see if they're back in stock. But burning bush, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, calls him then at age 80, um, to go now back to Egypt and to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And Moses, after these 40 years tending sheep, is kind of like, God, you know, you got the wrong guy. I can't, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I'm not, I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. I'm not a deliverer. I'm not a savior. I'm, I'm not anything special. And God's message back to Moses was, you're right. <laughs> you're not. But I am. And I'm going to go with you. And that's really a message for our lives, too. We're not anything all that special, and yet God is, and God is with us. And so we go through our lives with great confidence because the great creator of the universe knows us by name and is a part of our lives, and he is with us every single day of our lives. So we talked about that two weeks ago. Last week, um, Moses then goes back to Egypt, where he had fled 40 years earlier. He comes face-to-face with Moses, the most powerful man in the world, and he's got a message from Moses, and it's simply this. God says, let my people go. And Moses is kind of thinking, all right, God, you told me to go. Um, You appeared appeared to me in the burning bush. You sent me to do this. You're all-powerful. Here I am, giving the message that you have told me to give. I think this is probably going to go the way that I think it is. And Pharaoh says, are you kidding me? Let, my, let let the people go? No, I'm not going to let the people go. And he makes Moses' life very difficult. He makes Moses' life difficult. He makes the Israelites' life very difficult. And so the Israelites, they turn on Moses. They're not happy with him. And so Moses now is in this really difficult um, situation. Things are not working out the way that he would have thought that they would, the way that he wanted that they would. And he kind of starts complaining to God. God, you told me to do this. I'm just following your will for my life. I'm just doing the godly thing right here, right now which we're like that sometimes in our lives. God, I'm doing the godly thing. I'm doing what you would want me to do, and it's just not going the way that I thought it would. God, what gives? And God's reply to Moses was, you know what? None of this takes me by surprise. I I knew that this was going to be difficult, okay? So this isn't a surprise to me. I knew that your life was going to be difficult. I knew that you were going to go through the hardships in your life, Doesn't take me by surprise, but you got to know this that I'm still with you during those difficult times, and I'm going to use those difficult times in your life. It's all a part of my plan. So, Moses, you just got to trust me. And when we go through those difficult details of life, we just got to trust God, who knew that those difficulties were coming, who knows how they're going to work out, and promises that He's still going to be with us even during those difficult times. Now, Coming off of kind of those last two weeks, um, I think there's a lot of encouragement for us. There's a lot of inspiration for us. Um, and today, um, today's a little bit of a shift um, in the lesson that we're looking at today. Today's a little bit more of a teaching lesson. It's a little bit more of a, a lesson that just kind of helps us understand the whole message of the Bible. And so it's a little bit of a, a deeper th- uh, message. Um, it takes a little bit more of a mental um, exercise to kind of put this all together. We're, we're covering. Um, really a bigger section this morning. Um, we're really covering six chapters in the life of Moses, covering a lot of details, covering a lot of um, significant things. And so it's a little bit uh, more difficult, I would say. It's a little bit longer. It's a little bit, um, it's, it's a really important section. In fact, I would say that Exodus chapter 12 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament to truly understand what is the message behind the events of this chapter and so i'm going to kind of lead up to um exodus chapter 12 it's going to take us a while because we got to cover about five chapters to get to exodus 12 we're going to kind of not take a real in-depth look at exodus 12 today and then we're going to talk about the uh, kind of the significance as that narrative that storyline of a lamb kind of weaves throughout scripture and gets us to the cross which is enough all right so um moses goes to pharaoh it has got the message from god let my people go pharaoh says i'm not having anything to do with that i don't care who you are and he sends moses away and uh, pharaoh has an interesting response to moses when moses says let my people go and it's important for us to take a look at what pharaoh's response is to moses and it comes from exodus chapter 5 found up on the screen verse 2 Moses and Aaron have just appeared to Pharaoh and they've just said, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, Exodus 5, verse 2, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And this verse, this reply of Pharaoh to Moses is really what sets up The 10 plagues that we're going to be talking about today now we'll talk about that in just a second 10 plagues many of you are probably familiar with those um, but we'll talk save that for a second but moses or pharaoh he's got this reply and it's who is the lord that i should obey him who's the lord that i i should obey him i'm not going to listen to this lord this god that you say that you have who is he now our ears, I think, in our culture, we kind of hear a phrase like that, and we probably start to think that Pharaoh um, is what we would call an atheist, a man who says that there is no God. That's kind of what this phrase reminds us of. Uh, but the reality is, is that Pharaoh is anything but an atheist. And In fact, in, in this day and age, there really wasn't anything, uh, no one was really an atheist. It just didn't kind of exist. In Egyptian society, they had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of gods. In fact, many, many things in their society were gods. Um, you might not have known this before today, but each of the plagues, um, while it, it has a natural element to that, and what I mean, it, it involves natural things like r- water or frogs or gnats or locusts or hail. It, it involves natural things. Each one of the plagues also, in a much bigger way, um, has to do with one of the Egyptian gods. All right? So, for instance, in Egypt, in this day and age, the Nile River was a god. All right? They looked at it as their life source, and so they worshiped that river as if it was a god. The very first plague has to do with the Nile River. And so God not only is uh, using a natural thing to kind of change their society and bring calamity upon them, but he is also attacking the god of the Nile. Um, The sun and the moon were big gods to the Egyptians. God attacks the sun and the moon in the ten plagues. Frogs, believe it or not, frogs were um, sacred. Frogs were gods in ancient Egypt. And in one of the plagues, God makes... Literally probably millions and millions of frogs come upon the land. The people are overwhelmed with them. They can't stand them. They're everywhere, in their beds, in their pots, in their food. They're literally everywhere. And then God kills all of them. So first they're overrun by their gods, and then their gods are dead everywhere, all right? So God just is bringing calamity upon the nation of Egypt but he's also getting at a, a really a heart issue of their gods, all right? So Pharaoh, in his respo- reply, who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's not that, God, that Pharaoh is saying there's no such thing as God. What Pharaoh's really saying is, you have your God, but why should I fear him? Okay, that's really the heart of his question. Okay, y- you believe in your God, And I'm not saying that your God doesn't exist, but why should I fear your God? Why should I, in some way, stand in awe or take a step back because of your God? is really the the message that Pharaoh's getting across. And again, I think that that's a very um, common message, um, a very common idea in American culture today, right? I mean, 94% of Americans say that they believe in in God or uh, some kind of spiritual higher force. 94% of Americans. And yet most of them, I would say, do not truly fear God. Let me explain what I mean by that. I I think a lot of Americans, and and, right, we would be included in this 94% in some way, um, believe in God, um, and yet, as many Americans um, sometimes believe in God but don't truly fear God, I I think that this is true for some of us, probably all of us, at certain times or at certain points in our lives where we believe in God but we don't truly fear Him. What I mean by that is um, we... We want basically just enough of God to keep us out of hell and enough of God to get us into heaven, but no more. We want enough of him to keep us out of hell and enough of, us, enough of him to get us into heaven, but we don't want any more of God because any more of God makes a life too complicated and it kind of infringes on some opinions and some beliefs that we have. So God, you know, God's got his opinions on, on marriage. He's got his opinions on sexuality. He's got his opinions on, uh, on the way that we should treat the people around us, the way we should love the people around us, the way we should respect the people around us. God's got his, all of his opinions, but I've got my opinions. And I don't necessarily at times always like all of God's opinions, and so I want just enough of God to keep me out of hell and to get me into heaven, but not too much of God that, that I have to follow His ways. And what I would say then, that's really cultural American Christianity, it's I believe in God, but I do not truly fear God. And as we look at the ten plagues, what God is really getting at is do you fear me? Do you fear me? Now some of you, you look at the ten plagues, and you know, you, you, you can recall in your own mind without reading them kind of what these ten plagues are all about, these ten calamities that bring destruction, that bring the greatest nation of the world at this time to its knees um, physically and economically and religiously, kind of destroys that nation. Some of you, you, you recall that and you think, you know what, good, God's out to get the bad guys, God's doing what God does and it's a good thing. And some of you, you hear these ten plagues and you recall this account of what God did to the nation of Egypt, and you think to yourself, you know what, that's exactly why I have a problem with the God of the Bible. Because all he is, is he's like this cosmic cop up in heaven who's just kind of out to get bad people and get people when they mess up, and I mess up in my life, and God is just kind of waiting to get me. And that's kind of the idea that a lot of people have of God. And what I hope to to do today is is to help you see that both of those ideas are really very superficial and that really the heart of these ten plagues is to get us to fear God in a correct sense. Now, it's important that we understand that we're talking about the correct sense of the fear of God because I think some of you probably grew up with somebody in your life, probably an older male in your life, who said something like this, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. Right? Right? I see some of you nodding your head, you probably grew up with a dad or a grandpa or an uncle who used that phrase, going to put the fear of God in you. What do they mean by that? I'm going to make sure that you have this sense that God is up in heaven and he is watching you and the second you mess up, the second you mess up, God is going to get you, the fear of God. Is that true of God? Is there um, some sense in which we should fear God as if he could get us? That's actually true. There is some sense, as we're going to see today, of a fear of God. And we're going to see that in the ten plagues. We're going to see that especially in the first nine plagues. But as we get to the tenth plague, We need to make sure we get through all 10 of them and we have to get to this final episode, this final plague where God delivers his people from Egyptian slavery, where God says, behold the lamb in that final plague so that that fear of God, that terror of God changes from not just terror, but a stepping back and looking at God with sheer and utter awe. That God would go to such great lengths to rescue his people. So what I hope for you today is that while some of you here today maybe walked in with a fear of God sense and a negative sense that God is just out to get you and that God is someone to be terrified of, I hope to bring you one step further And to have you truly understand what it means to fear the God of the Bible. That is to stand in awe of his amazing love. Do you you understand how big of a concept this is? I mean, this is, this is really how God reveals himself throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. This is really the, kind of that underlying message throughout all of Scripture that God is out to teach us to understand who he truly is, what he is truly up to in this world, and how he views you and me. A man by the name of uh, A.W. Tozer, I love this quote, Uh, he was a Christian pastor, author from the early 1900s, -1900s. mid-1900s. He has a quote that I think is just so important for us to to understand. And A.W. Tozer wrote this, he said that one of the most important things about you, one of the most important things about you is what you think about when you think about God. One of the most important things about you is what you think about when you think about God. When you think about God, do you stand in fear of God that is in terror of God? Or when you think about God, do you stand in fear of God that is in awe and amazement at the great love of the God of the universe that he has for you? One of the most important things about you is what you think about when you think about God. In Exodus chapter 12, we're going to see the heart of God and the narrative story of the Lamb that is carried out throughout Scripture. So, Pharaoh has got a question. Who is the Lord? I believe that he's there but I do not stand in fear of him. And now in the ten plagues, God's got a couple of responses for Pharaoh. Uh, first one is for Exodus uh, chapter 7, also found up on the screen. Verse 5, um, Exodus 7, verse 5. Um, God now, in these, as he's about to bring the plagues on Egypt, he says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israels out of it. So how is, Pharaoh's got this question. Who is the Lord that I should fear him? God says, they're going to know who I am when I stretch out my hand. What he's referencing there is these ten plagues, these ten calamities. They're going to know through those that I'm the Lord. Right, they're going to fear me, terror me, stand in terror of me because of these ten plagues. But they're also going to know me because I am going to rescue my I'm going to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. So God's kind of answering this question. Another place where God answers this question, and this is an important verse for us to reference, Exodus 9, uh, part of verse 13-14. So um, this is kind of God's reply. He says, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me or this time I will send the for- full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that, kind of, here's why, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. At the end of the ten plagues, the end of these ten calamities, every single person in the world is going to step back and realize that there is no God like our God, no one like him. He is totally unique, and the way that he is unique has to do with a lamb, all right? So hugely important, this idea of a lamb. So Exodus chapter 12 now. We've we've just kind of skipped through the first nine plagues. Um, You'll have to go home and read them yourself, Exodus 7 through 12 here, um, if you want to kind of read all of them in details. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, getting to the last plague, the tenth plague, and God told Moses that after this tenth plague here now, the Israelites are going to be able to go out free. And God says that in this final plague, I'm going to bring calamity upon the nation of Egypt unlike anything i've done before and really this night is going to be a a night unlike any other night Um, the israelites they've been in egypt for 430 years this is now going to be their last night in slavery after 430 years the final night the next morning they're going to get up and they're going to leave um psalm 105 tells us that when the israelites got up that morning and when they were leaving egypt they left in joy They were were so excited. They were so much in joy because after all of these years of slavery, they're finally being delivered. They're finally being rescued and saved. And so there is great rejoicing among the Israelites. But the night before that, not a single person, probably in the entire land of Egypt, Egyptian or Israelite, probably not a single person slept that night because of what God did this one night to rescue his people. God told Moses that on this one night, this last night, this night when nobody's going to sleep, God told Moses that what's going to happen is that he is going to send the destroyer, We don't have a lot of time to talk about that today, but God is going to send the destroyer into the nation of Egypt, and he is going to kill the firstborn of every Egyptian household uh, of sons and animals. Think about that. In the entire nation of Egypt, there is not going to be a single home that does not experience a death. I mean, if somebody close to us dies, I mean, who do we lean on? Who do we go to support for support? We go to family, we go to friends, we go to neighbors. I cannot fathom what this night was like where every single home experienced a death. Total destruction in the land of Egypt. And the ironic thing is, is that also in every Israelite home on this night, there was a And this death was hugely significant as part of the deliverance that they have from Egyptian slavery. It wasn't the death of the firstborn son. It wasn't the death of the firstborn animal. It was the death of a one-year-old lamb, a lamb without blemish or defect. And because of the blood of the lamb, there was deliverance for the nation of Israel. So, I'm going to read Exodus chapter 12. Beginning at verse 1, God's instructions to the nation of Israel having to do with this lamb on this final night after 430 years in Egypt. Before I read it, just want to point out that for the Israelites, this was brand new. They had had never heard anything like this before. They didn't have, uh, you know, a book of Exodus that they could turn back to and read about it and tell their children about it. This was the very first time they were being told anything like this. So this is completely new. This doesn't necessarily make sense to them. What does a lamb have to do with deliverance? What does a lamb have to do with rescue? And yet God was making a point that it had to do with the blood of a lamb. So, Exodus 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the, whole is, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. They are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be one-year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, so four days, it's now in your house, uh, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then you are to take some of the blood, it's totally new, totally foreign to their way of thinking. You're supposed to take some of the blood and catch it, you know, and put it on the sides and top of the doorframe of the houses where you eat the lamb. That same night, you are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw, cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. The deliverer is going to pass over. Verse 12. On that same night, I, God, the deliverer, or the the destroyer, excuse me, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. A night nobody slept. A night we are told in Egyptian homes that there was deep and great weeping and agony because of a death. A night that we are told in in Israelite homes that they followed God's instructions and the next day they left in Egypt. But I don't want you to pass up something here. Can you imagine if you were the firstborn in one of those Egyptian homes Or, I'm sorry, in one of those Israelite homes. Can you imagine that? You lived because it died. You lived because the lamb was killed and its blood was put on the doorframe and the doorposts of your house. Had they not done it? Had there not been the blood of the lamb on the house where the firstborn Israelites were? Had they not followed God's instructions? Had there not been that blood there that firstborn son would have died. And so the next morning when they got up and they were leaving Israel, what was on their mind and what was on their parents' mind and what was on the whole nation of Israel's mind as they left that morning was, we leave, we're rescued, because it died. The lamb died. And its blood covered our homes and God passed over and now we leave free. And so in ten plagues there is those who believe that there is the God who fear him in terror and there are those who believe in God and stand in awe of his rescue plan for his nation of Israel with the blood of a lamb. Fast forward a couple thousand years later. And you have John the Baptist looking at a man who's walking towards him and he says of that man, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And every Israelite, every Jewish person who heard John the Baptist say, look, the Lamb of God, they understood what that meant. They understood the significance that a lamb had to be killed because every year after the Exodus, every year after that very first Passover, they celebrated it over and over and over again. They've been celebrating it for 1,500 years. Always killing a lamb, always reminding them that God delivered them from Egypt and always looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb who would shed his blood to rescue God's people. And John has the privilege of announcing to the world, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the overarching, underlying, major message of Scripture, that there had to be the death of a lamb. And ultimately, the Lamb of God to pay for the sins of the world. To pay for your sins and my sins. To pay for those times when we kind of look at God and we say, God, I believe in you, but I don't truly fear you. You know, God, I want enough of you to keep me out of hell and I want enough of you to get me into heaven, but I don't want so much of you that you're going to change my life. Or I don't want so much of you that I have to kind of change my way of thinking to fall in line with you. Jesus came into the world to die for the sins of the world, the sins of yours, your sins, my sins. And you think about that. God's the judge. Right? In, the, in, the, in Egypt, in the ten plagues, you see that very clearly, that God is the judge. And God says that there is no one like me. What does he mean by that? Every world religion has a standard by which people are to live up to. And in every other world religion outside of Christianity, every other world religion, it's simply this. Here's the standard. You live up to it or you face judgment. God says, I am not like any other God in this world. And here's how I'm different. There is my standard. And I am the judge. And I come into this world and I bear the judgment of sinful people. And there is no one like me who's willing to die for sinful people. That's the heart of God. That is the grace of our God. That the Lamb would die for the sins of the world. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us in this terrible time of history in the, in the ten plagues for showing us your heart a heart that wants to save us a heart that is gracious and loving a heart that was willing to bring judgment against your own son so that we would receive forgiveness and acceptance lord jesus you are the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world thank you for your love Thank you for shedding your blood and forgiving your life as a substitute for our sins. We are grateful not only that you died for us, but that you rose and that you live and that you conquered sin and death for us. May that good news fill our hearts and may it flood our lives. May we stand in awe of you every moment of every day. Heavenly Father, we also ask for your presence and peace to be with our member, Miriam Gabrish, who's had a uh, serious fall this past week. Lord, as it seems as if her time here on earth is drawing to a close, we ask that you would bring her comfort and peace, keep her eyes fixed on her Savior Jesus, be with her family, and grant them peace and confidence that you are watching over her as they continue to support and care for her. Lord, we also ask that you would be with Carissa Rutz and her family, as uh, Carissa's brother Jason was tragically killed this past week, we ask that you, or we, we thank you that you brought Jason to faith. We thank you that he is now with you in heaven. We ask that you would uh, be with Carissa and her family during this difficult time. We ask that the the peace and confidence of knowing that they'll see him again would bring joy to their hearts. Use us and uh, to continue to support her and her family during this difficult time. <coughs> And finally, Lord, we ask for your wisdom and guidance upon Pastor Ben, who received a pastoral call this past week to serve at Solo Fide in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Help him to evaluate where he can best use his gifts to serve you and your church. Continue to bless him. Continue to bless the congregation in Georgia and continue to uh, bless the work being done here for the advancement of your kingdom everywhere. We also join together in the prayer you have taught us